I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. First things first, a very happy Christmas to you all. I hope you're all having a great day, or at the very least, a good Sunday. Unless you're listening to it out of time and it's like August now, I guess I hope that day is great too? Anyway, I'm currently off in New England at the moment, spending Christmas with the in-laws, but I have recorded this episode ahead of time so that you can still get your Q of E fill. Think of it as a Christmas special. Catherine of Aragon will have to wait another week before she finds out how Henry intends to go about annulling their marriage, because today we're going to talk about a different, more fictional woman... Eowyn from J.R.R. Tolkien's incomparable Lord of the Rings trilogy. Now, for those of you who have not seen or read the Lord of the Rings, well, first you should totally do it. I can't think of a better thing to spend your Christmas money on. But even if you don't, then I think you will still enjoy this episode. I assume no prior knowledge. If I still haven't persuaded you, then no worries, I'll see you again in January for the next episode proper. If you're new to the show, welcome. To the rest of you, welcome back. Hello, and welcome to the Queens of England podcast. Supplemental, Eowyn, Lady of the Shield Arm and Shield Maiden of Rohan. Rings, and indeed The Hobbit and a number of J.R. Tolkien's other works, take place in a fictional place called Middle-earth. This world draws heavily from the early and later Middle Ages, with a heavy dose of fantasy in there to boot. There are a number of different races of people involved across a number of different realms and what have you, but today, all you'll need to concern yourself with are humans and orcs. Well, and a couple of wizards, a few hobbits, and a god. Now, as I said before the titles, I am assuming no prior knowledge here, which means that I will be A, grossly oversimplifying, and B, leaving a lot of stuff out. So apologies in advance for you hardcore Tolkienists out there. Of course, the books and the films that adapted them are not exactly the same. Their dialogue differs, and certain scenes are not present in both or are changed. 
For the purposes of this episode, I will largely be drawing from the books, as is my want, but I will also throw some scenes from the films in from time to time. Before I introduce this world, though, I think it's important to start with a discussion of women in Tolkien, because it is a bit of a controversial issue. Tolkien wrote The Lord of the Rings in the 1950s, and if we're honest, he was not a modern man where women were concerned. Indeed, his first book, The Hobbit, is notable that in its 300 or so pages, there is not one single female character. Not one. In The Lord of the Rings, a far greater novel in terms of length and scope, there are a few women, but really there are only three of note, and even that is stretching it a bit. Arwen, Galadriel, and the subject of this episode, Eowyn. Tolkien relegates his women to often very stereotypically feminine roles, and doesn't really make any effort to develop their characters in the same way that he does for so many male characters. Really, it's very disappointing. In the films, there is an attempt to do so, and all three women find their roles expanded, but there is only so much that you can do, and even Peter Jackson, I think, is guilty of shortchanging Eowyn. Tolkien, of course, was creating a pseudo-medieval world and wanted to make it realistic-ish, which is why he creates a set of kingdoms that are highly patriarchal. I get that. I also get that he was writing at a time when more misogynistic writing was often the norm. Again, I get it. But in a fantasy world, there is so much more he could have done. So many other kinds of characters or rulership systems that he could have explored, not to mention exploring the characters he already had. Anyway, minor rant over, let's talk about the world that Tolkien did create. In Middle-earth, in this time, there is a big bad, an evil, semi-divine being called Sauron, who controls a region called Mordor, which is full of orcs, a violent and ugly humanoid race that are generally pretty dumb but capable fighters and breed extremely quickly. Sauron's aim is pretty simple, conquer everything. He has in this an ally, a wizard called Saruman, who has his own elite orc army. Standing in their way are a number of races, but chief among them are two human kingdoms, Gondor and Rohan, and I'm sorry if this is a lot of names, but I promise we're nearly done. Tolkien was a very keen historian, and both Gondor and Rohan have very clear real-life influences. Gondor draws heavily from the Byzantine or Eastern Roman Empire, a once great but now decaying empire with large armies but struggling to hold the tide against a great enemy at the gates. Its capital was the great city of Constantinople, I mean Minas Tirith. Rohan is the Anglo-Saxon kingdom of England, really, but with one key difference, cavalry. They are known as the Horse Lords, and their land and culture is mostly based around the breeding and grazing of their steeds. Rohan's political system is a classic medieval monarchy, with the king holding all the power and this territory being largely sparsely populated with a few large settlements. The capital is Edoras, which contains the royal palace, the Golden Hall of Meduseld. Here is the city, as described by Legolas, the main character in the story. I see a white stream that comes down from the snow, as he said. Where it issues from the shadow of the vale, a green hill rises upon the east. A dike and mighty wall and thorny fence encircle it. Within, there rise the roofs of houses, and in the midst sit upon a green terrace, there stands aloft a great hall of men. And it seems to my eyes that it is thatched with gold. The light of it shines far over the land. Golden, too, are the posts of its doors. There men in bright mail stand, but all else within the courts are yet asleep. Edoras, those courts are called, said Gandalf, and Meadowseld is that golden hall. There dwells Theoden, son of Thengel, king of the Mark of Rohan. Okay, so that nicely brings me to the royal family of Rohan. 
In charge, we have King Ferdin, who is a widower with all his children deceased. His sister's children, though, do survive, and they are his immediate successors. First, we have his nephew, Eomer, who is his heir apparent, and is marshal-slash-commander of the king's armies. And second, his niece, who, you've guessed it, is Eowyn. Now, one of the great disappointments when it comes to talking about medieval queens is that we so very rarely get a good description of them, something that I am so pleased is not as much of a problem now that I'm amidst the Tudors. Of course, since I'm talking about fiction, this isn't a problem here either. So here is Eowyn in Tolkien's words. Grave and thoughtful was her glance, as she looked on the king with cool pity in her eyes. Very fair was her face, and her long hair was like a river of gold. Slender and tall she was, in her white robe, girt with silver, but strong she seemed and stern as steel, a daughter of kings. Thus Aragorn, for the first time in the full light of day, beheld Eowyn, Lady of Rohan, and thought her fair and cold, like a morning of pale spring that has not yet come to womanhood. And she now was suddenly aware of him, tall heir of kings, wise with many winters, grey-cloaked, hiding a power that yet she felt. For a moment still as stone she stood, and then, turning swiftly, she was gone. Okay, so I've given you the background. What I'm going to do now is talk a little about Eowyn's life as she enters the story. Like I said, Eowyn was King Ferdin's niece. Her brother Eomer had what we might deem as the typical medieval male education, i.e. a martial one and a preparation to rule. Eowyn's upbringing is somewhat less orthodox. Unlike our queens, she too had a semi-martial upbringing as a shield maiden. This is her explaining it in her own words in The Two Towers. Give some skill with the blade. The women of this country learned long ago that those without swords can still die upon them. I fear neither death nor pain. So, what was a shield maiden? Well, this is a notion from Viking and Germanic lore, of which Tolkien himself was an avid reader and scholar. In an Icelandic saga called the Volsung Saga, one of the characters describes herself as, quote, I am a shield maiden. I wear a helmet and ride with the warrior kings. I must support them, and I am not averse to fighting. Eowyn, indeed, will go on to do this later in the story, following her people into battle, but more on this later. Despite this martial training, this appears to be more of a precaution than anything else for Eowyn, a training in self-defence, one might say. Eowyn was expected to be able to defend herself if attacked, but was not supposed to be destined for the life of a warrior of Rohan like her brother. This is shown in an exclamation that she makes to Aragorn when she says, quote, But am I not of the house of Aeol, a shield maiden, and not a dry nurse? Yet it is in a capacity as a nurse that we first meet Eowyn. King Ferdinand at the start of the story is a man drained of energy and mental capacity by the evil wizard Saruman through a double agent at the Rohan court, the king's chief advisor, Grima Wormtongue. Grima's task was to weaken Rohan so completely that it would not be able to withstand Saruman's coming attack. The Ferdinand that we first encounter is so weak indeed that he can barely stand, and it appears that it has become Erwin's job to become his full-time nurse. Now, of course, this would never have been her job had she been born a man, but since she was a woman, this was considered a logical role for her. This is not really a task that we see quite so clearly in our queens, though we will see it in a future episode when we cover Catherine Parr, Henry VIII's sixth and final wife. What's more relevant, really, is that she is placed in a very stereotypically female role, despite the fact that she is of royal blood, and the enemies of the kingdom are closing in. Her cousin and brother are both in the thick of the action, 
and if she had other brothers, then they would have been so too. She is a shield maiden, and yet right now, she's nurse. As the most senior unmarried woman in the kingdom, one might imagine there would be plenty of claims on her hand in marriage, and indeed this was part of Grima Wormtongue's plan to complete his domination of Rohan. First, he sent the king's only son to die against Saruman's orcs, then he engineered the banishment of Eomer. With Theoden dying, this meant that the throne would pass to Eowyn, but just like in medieval England, the notion of a woman ruling was crazy, even for a shield maiden, and so whoever her husband was would be the one to rule. Here is Grima threatening Erwin with sharing her cousin or brother's fate unless she towed the line again from the two towers. Oh, he, he must have died sometime in the night. What a tragedy for the king to lose his only son and heir. I understand his passing is hard to accept, especially now that your brother has deserted you. Leave me alone, snake! Oh, but you are alone. Who knows what you've spoken to the darkness in the bitter watches of the night when all your life seems to shrink, the walls of your bower closing in about you, a hutch to trample some wild thing. Your words are poison. This is a very common notion in our story of women being married against their will, or at the very least without their consent, to men whom they have never met and or didn't like. Indeed, there are very few women in our story who can said to have chosen their husband relatively freely, though this does become a little more common in the later Middle Ages and the Tudor period. Indeed, this reminds me of the marriage of Henry V to Catherine of France, a match solely designed to grant a man power over a kingdom through the domination of its princess through marriage. Grima's reign of terror, though, is broken by our heroes, and so normal courtly life resumes. Theoden is revitalised, and no longer needs Eowyn as a nurse, so she can assume a new role at court, as the de facto Queen of Rohan. Since there is no actual queen, as Theoden's wife is dead, there needed to be someone who could fulfil the Queen's duties at court. Let's not forget that queens weren't just there to churn out babies and look pretty, they were supposed to run the court and host functions. We didn't tend to hear of it too much in our sources because it was considered ubiquitous enough not to mention much comment unless something terribly different was done. Erwin's role in this is described in a scene set just after Theoden was freed from Grima's domination. Quote, The king now rose, and at once Erwin came forward bearing wine. Fair fool, Theoden ha, she said. Receive now this cup and drink in happy hour. Health be with thee at thy going and coming. Theoden drank from the cup, and she then proffered it to the guests. But the time for drinking soon ended, because it was now time for the royal army to depart the capital and head for their great military stronghold at the Hornburg in Helm's Deep. Theoden takes with him nigh on every man he has, but he needs to leave someone in charge while he's away, as well as a contingency in case things went badly. He chose his niece, the shield maiden of Rohan, Eowyn. He would do the same later in the story in The Return of the King when he and his whole army marches to Gondor's aid. This is the classic notion that we have seen throughout our story of women being left in charge when their husbands went off to war. This was the only time that they were customarily given real political power and it only came because the men were off fighting, something women were not allowed to do. Here is Theoden in The Return of the King explaining her role. I have left instruction. The people are to follow your rule in my stead. Take up my seat in the Golden Hall. Long may you defend Edoras. 
if the battle goes ill. Her role in this is to be the defender of Rohan, shown by her appearance as the army departs in the Two Towers. Then the king sat upon a seat before his doors, and Eowyn knelt before him and received from him a sword and a fair corslet. Farewell, sister-daughter, he said. Dark is the hour, yet maybe we shall return to the Golden Hall. But in Dunharrow the people may long defend themselves, and if the battle go ill, thither will come all who escape. Speak not so, she answered. A year shall I endure for every day that passes until your return. The king now went down the stair with Gandalf beside him. The others followed. Aragorn looked back as they passed towards the gate. A lone Eowyn stood before the doors of the house at the stair's head. The sword was set up upright before her, and her hands were laid upon the hilt. She was clad now in mail and shone like silver in the sun. So here we have Eowyn finally appearing as the warrior, the defender of her people. Of course, the idea is that she will never have to don her armour in, in anger against the king's enemies. After all, that is why the king is heading off in the first place. But she is there as a last line of defence. Again, this is not something we see in our story. But the notion of the warrior queen, at least in propaganda, is something that did occur. Of course, we saw in the last episode how Catherine of Aragon's role in the victory at Flodden was portrayed this way. Straying into ruling queens, how could we forget Elizabeth I rallying her troops ahead of a Spanish invasion via the famed Spanish Armada, reportedly appearing in full armour and giving her famous speech about having the body of a weak and feeble woman, but the heart and the stomach of a king? Interestingly, in the films, while Eowyn is placed in charge of Rohan when the army goes to Helm's Deep, she goes with it. The film changes the narrative somewhat, so that the whole capital evacuates the Hornburg, every man, woman and child. While the men fight, the women cower with the kids in the caves. And who do you think was put in charge? Yep, Eowyn is forced to play the nurse again. As we saw in the film, she wasn't impressed. I'm to be sent with the women into the caves. That is an honourable charge. To mind the children, to find food and bedding when the men return. What renown is there in that? My lady, a time may come for valour without renown. Who then will your people look to in the last defence? Let me stand at your side. It is not in my power to command it. You do not command the others to stay. They fight beside you because they would not be parted from you. A key characteristic of Eowyn is a hatred of not being in control of her own destiny. As we saw earlier in the story, she was essentially a prisoner at court. Her duty to her uncle the king, keeping her in harm's way as Grima prepared to make his strike. And of course, this notion of women having their future, the entire course of their lives outside their own control, was essentially the norm throughout medieval history, and indeed before and since. Medieval queens and noble women could not choose who they married, where they lived, or in many cases have access to their own money. They were often separated from every member of their family and any acquaintance they had, and cast off to some foreign prince for often very little in return. They were often prisoners in their own lives. Eowyn's fear of this is beautifully expressed in this clip from The Two Towers when she describes her greatest fear to Aragorn. What do you fear, my lady? A cage. To stay behind bars until youth and old age accept them. And all chance of valour has gone beyond recall or desire. You're a daughter of kings. A shield maiden of Rohan. I do not think that will be your fate. Okay, so moving on a bit in this story, Rohan managed to defeat Saruman's army at Helm's Deep, but the world of men faces an even greater danger from the real big bad of the series, Sauron. He is sending an enormous army to attack Gondor. The battle will take place at the fortress capital Minas Tirith, with a Gondorian army cowering behind its massive walls. 
Since Gondor and Rohan are old allies and face a great existential threat, Theoden decides to ride to their aid. Once again, he leaves Eowyn in charge, like we saw in that earlier clip, but both in film and book, she is reticent to do so. Here we have some top-class patriarchy from Tolkien's characters, best exhibited by Aragorn. He himself is about to embark on a very dangerous quest to go recruit, essentially, some demons to fight with him. Eowyn does not want him to go for a number of reasons, one of the romantic, a topic I will return to, but also for other reasons, which will become clearer from this quote. I'm going to quote a long bit now from The Return of the King, because I think this section best expresses Eowyn as a character and the restraints put on her by a society. I will occasionally break into the narrative to offer some analysis. You are a stern lord and resolute, she said, and thus do men win renown. She paused. Lord, she said, if you must go, then let me ride in your following, for I am weary of skulking in the hills and wish to face peril and battle. Your duty is with your people, he answered. Too often have I heard of duty, she cried, but am I not of the house of Ale, a shield maiden and not a dry nurse? I have waited on faltering feet long enough. Since they falter no longer, it seems, may I not now spend my life as I will? Few may do that with honour, he answered. But as for you, lady, did you not accept the charge to govern the people until their lord's return? If you had not been chosen, then some marshal or captain would have been set in the same place, and he could not ride away from his charge, were he weary of it or no. Okay, so we have here a discussion about duty. Clearly, what Aragorn is saying here is that Eowyn's duty to her people was her duty as a woman to her people, invoking a notion essentially of motherhood. While the men go off and fight, she had to stay, and essentially keep house. Yes, this, keeping house, was a very important job, and could involve taking up arms to defend what was left of her people, but this was a world where renown was achieved with glory on the battlefield. All men had the chance, in this most desperate of times, to make an indelible mark, and yet she had no choice, for her duty as a princess, as a woman, was to stay away. Aragorn, in that last line, was essentially guilting her, treating her as if she was a complaining child. Eowyn was having none of it. Quote, Shall I always be chosen, she said bitterly. Shall I always be left behind when the riders depart, to mend the house while they win renown, and find food and beds when they return? A time may come, said he, when none will return. Then there will be need of valour without renown, for none shall remember the deeds that are done in the last defence of your homes. Yet the deeds will be no less valiant because they are unpraised. And she answered, All of your words are but to say you are a woman and your part is in the house. But when the men have died in battle and honour, you have leave to be burned in the house, for the men shall need it no more. But I am of the house. Life is full of what ifs. Some awesome. Like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome. Like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out-of-pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what-ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. 
That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Plushcare.com slash weight loss. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. ...of ale and not a serving woman, I can ride and wield blade and do fear neither pain or death. What do you fear, lady? he asked. A cage, she said. To stay behind bars and use until old age accept them, and all chance of doing great deeds is gone beyond recall or desire. And yet you counselled me not to adventure on the road I had chosen, because it is perilous. So may one counsel another, she said. Yet I do not bid you flee from peril, but not to ride to battle where your sword may win renown and victory. I would not see a thing that is high and excellent cast away needlessly. Nor would I, he said. Therefore I say to you, lady, stay, for you have no errand to the south. Neither have those who go with thee. They go only because they would not be parted from thee, because they love thee. Then she turned and vanished into the night. So we have this notion of a cage, which the film places in the two towers, which I talked about earlier. Eowyn here is making the point that she can wield a blade just as well as any. She can fight for her people, for her future and for her friends. But she's not allowed to because of the restrictions placed upon her as a woman. Aragorn, by saying she has no errant to the south, i.e. to war, again says that war is no place for a woman. It's a man's world. This patriarchal idea is then further expanded upon a paragraph or so later when Eowyn begs again to be allowed to join Aragorn on his quest. His reply was, quote, I will not, lady. For that I could not grant without leave of the king and of your brother. And they will not return until tomorrow. But I count now every hour, indeed every minute. Farewell. And there we have it. Aragorn could not bring along Eowyn without the permission of her senior male relatives, her brother and uncle. This again gets the idea of agency. Eowyn, as a woman, like the queens of our story, and really up to relatively modern times in the West, is treated as the property of her male relatives, first of her father, then her husband, and then, if she survives, then both her son. I wouldn't want to go too far in comparing this exchange, though, in a military sense to the experience of the queens in our story, as I don't think any of them really hankered after glory on the battlefield, as Eowyn does. But this exchange does speak to a fundamental set of shackles placed upon queens with regard to what they were and were not allowed to do. Some queens were very happy to play the part that they were assigned, but others bitterly resented these and sought to push back. Eleanor of Aquitaine is a great example of this, a woman who refused to be a demure wife, but constantly sought to protect her own lands and children, and was a constant thorn in the side of anyone who sought to sideline her. But of course, the best of them all was the Empress Matilda, whom I covered in a supplemental set episode a while ago. She sought to break the greatest glass ceiling of the age and actually rule a kingdom, despite a whole heap of men who told her that, as a woman, it was not her place. Okay, so back to Tolkien. Eowyn ignores everyone and disguises herself as a male warrior called Durnhelm in order to win her glory and fight for her kingdom. The Rohirrim arrived just in time, just as Sauron's army have breached the walls of Minas Tirith and are fighting the Gondorians street to street, level by level. Theoden's mounted army launched an enormous cavalry charge that comes close to sweeping the enemy from the field of Pelennor, the plains before the walls of the city. 
However, they are counterattacked, and Theoden himself is attacked and mortally wounded by the commander of Sauron's army, a wraith named the Witch King of Angmar. He has a long backstory that I won't trouble you with, but what you do need to know is that he is a semi-supernatural being who was once human. He's mounted atop some sort of flying lizard thing, and it has been prophesied that no man can kill him. While this is a magnificent scene in the film, I will quote the book version, as it's a little more verbose. We start with the Witch King, who hisses, Hinder me, thou fool! No living man may hinder me! But no living man am I! You look upon a woman! Eowyn I am, Eamon's daughter! You stand between me and my lord and kin! Begone, if you be not deathless! For living or dark undead, I will smite you if you touch him! A little to the left, facing them, stood she whom he had called Dernhelm, but the helm of her secrecy had fallen from her, and her bright hair, released from its bonds, gleamed with pale gold upon her shoulders. Her eyes, grey as the sea, were hard and fell, yet tears were on her cheek. A sword was in her hand, and she raised her shield against the horror of her enemy's eyes. Ere when it was, and Dunham also, for into Mary's mind flashed the memory of the face that he saw at the riding from Dunharrow, the face of one that goes seeking death, having no hope. Pity filled his heart, and great wonder and suddenly the slow-kindled courage of his race awoke. He clenched his hand. She should not die, so fair, so desperate. At least she should not die alone, unaided. Good old Tolkien. Even in Eowyn's great moment, he manages to squeeze in something un-PC. This happens throughout the book, actually. He continually refers to her first and foremost as fair, essentially saying her most important redeeming quality was her beauty. Mary, a hobbit that was also banned from Theoden from coming to the battle on account of him being a three-foot-tall farmer, is spurred into action, mainly out of this patriarchal need to defend the damsel, even as the damsel is being badass. Back to the story. Suddenly, the great beast beat its hideous wings, and the wind of them was foul. Again, it leapt into the air, and then swiftly fell down upon Eowyn, shrieking, striking with beak and claw. Yet she did not flinch. Maiden of the Rohirrim, child of kings, slender but as a steel blade, fair but terrible. See, again with the fair. A swift stroke she dealt, skilled and deadly. The outstretched neck she clove asunder, and the hewn head fell like a stone. Backward she sprang, as the huge shape crashed to ruin. Vast wings outspread, crumbled on the earth, and with its fall the shadow passed away. A light fell about her, and her hair shone in the sunrise. He really will not shut up about how pretty her hair is. Out of the wreck rose the black rider, tall and threatening, towering above her. With a cry of hatred that stung the very ears like venom, he let fall his mace. Her shield was shivered in many pieces, and her arm was broken. She stumbled to her knees. He bent over her like a cloud, and his eyes glittered. He raised his mace to kill. But suddenly he too stumbled forward with a cry of bitter pain, and his stroke went wide, driving into the ground. Mary's sword had stabbed him from behind, shearing through the black mantle and passing up beneath the hauberk that pierced the sinew behind his mighty knee. Eowyn! Eowyn! cried Mary. Then tottering, struggling up with her last strength, she drove her sword between crown and mantle as the great shoulders bowed before her. The sword broke, sparkling into many shards. The crown rolled away with a clang. Eowyn fell forward upon her fallen foe. And there stood Meriadoc the hobbit in the midst of the slain, blinking like an owl in the daylight, for tears blinded him. And through a mist he looked upon Eowyn's fair head, as she lay and did not move. And he looked upon the face of the king, 
fallen in the midst of its glory. I wasn't kidding about the badassery, was I? Notwithstanding Tolkien forever counterbalancing said badassery by referring to her as pretty or her hair as fair all of the time. Yet, in that fight, when she had her sword in hand and was battling this supernatural force, she is described in fairly neutral terms, not as a woman, which is pretty unique in a Tolkien description. His fixation with beauty, though, is something worth talking about a little. I've talked a few times in this podcast about how medieval writers equated physical beauty with faith. As everything was divinely ordained, this meant that the beautiful queens were pious ones as well just as the ugly ones clearly had something of the devil about them. In The Lord of the Rings, Tolkien does not express things in so many words, but all of the good characters are attractive and all of the evil ones are ugly. Therefore, by so explicitly and continually referring to Eowyn as beautiful, Tolkien is using a literary device that goes back centuries and is telling us not only of the beauty of her features, but also of her very soul. Okay, so Eowyn is seriously wounded in this episode, and after the battle is won, thanks in no small part to her efforts, she is taken to the Houses of Healing. There, she is healed by Aragorn, the new King of Gondor, whom she has a crush on for the whole story. Unfortunately, Aragorn is betrothed to an elf princess called Arwen, and so is unable to reciprocate her feelings. But this love that Eowyn has for Aragorn is, for me, not true romantic love. She loves what he represents more than the man himself. He is a handsome, rugged adventurer, an outsider who offers her an escape from her predestined path, not to mention one of the people who had freed her from the clutches of Grima Wormtongue. However, as we have already seen, he is rather patronising towards her, albeit with good intentions. Aragorn increases his stock as her one and only. Aragorn increases his stock as her one and only by healing her from her wounds, but then he rides off with his army and all of Eowyn's friends and countrymen for the final battle with Sauron. Eowyn is left, therefore, in the hospital, while the climactic battle was taking place, the one that would define the rest of history. She is sad, worried, and alone, and there she meets Faramir. Faramir is the steward of Gondor, a kind of regency system, or even a kind of prime ministerial position, that governed the kingdom since the line of kings had been broken some time ago, Aragorn having reforged this line with his victories in the field. Faramir was wounded in an earlier battle, but he too was healed by Aragorn. When he first encounters Eowyn awake, she is lamenting the fact that she was not able to ride off to battle. He replies that he too wishes to be in the battle, but says that there is no shame in being absent in their condition. The fight may yet come to them soon enough. They are looking east towards Mordor, and for once Eowyn finds a man who does not patronise her. If you stay in this house in our care, lady, and take your rest, then you shall walk in this garden in the sun as you will, and you shall look east, whither all our hopes have gone. And here you will find me, walking and waiting, and also looking east. It would ease my care if you would speak to me, or walk at whiles with me. Then she raised her head, and looked at him in the eyes again, and a colour came in her pale face. How should I ease your care, my lord, she said, and I do not desire the speech of living men. Would you have my plain answer, he said? I would. Then, Eowyn of Rohan, I say to you that you are beautiful. In the valleys of our hills there are flowers fair and bright, and maidens fairer still, but neither flower nor lady have I seen till now in Gondor so lovely and so sorrowful. It may be that only a few days are left ere darkness falls upon our world, and when it comes I hope to face it steadily, but it would ease my heart if, while the sun yet shines, I could see you still, for you and I have both passed under the wings of the shadow, and the same hand drew us back. Alas, not me, she said. Shallow lies on me still. 
Look to me not for healing. I am a shield maiden and my hand is ungentle. But I thank you for this at least, that I need not keep to my chamber. I will walk abroad by the grace of the steward of the city. And she did him a curtsy and walked back to the house. But Faramir, for a long while, walked alone in the garden, and his glance now strayed rather to the house rather than to the eastward walls. How romantic! Faramir here talks to Eowyn as his equal. He does not belittle her desire to fight, but instead empathises with her. He talks to her as a woman, yes, but not as someone less than himself. To an extent, at least, he's not perfect. This continues when Eowyn is struggling to let go of her feelings for Aragorn. Faramir compares the king's feelings towards her as being motivated by pity, whereas he says, I do not offer you my pity, for you are a lady high and valiant, and have yourself one renown that shall not be forgotten, and you are a lady beautiful I deem beyond even the words of the elven tongue to tell, and I love you. Once I pitied your sorrow, but now were you sorrowless, without any fear or any lack, were you the blissful queen of Gondor, still would I love you. Eowyn, do you not love me? Okay, now here comes the severely problematic bit. Then the heart of Eowyn changed, or else at last she understood it, and suddenly her winter passed, and the sun shone on her. I will be a shield maiden no longer, nor vie with the great riders, nor take joy only in the songs of slaying. I will be a healer, and love all things that grow and are not barren. And again she looked at Faramir. No longer do I desire to be a queen, she said. Then Faramir laughed merrily. That is well, he said, for I am not a king. Yet I will wed with the white lady of Rohan, if it be her will. And if she will, then let us cross the river, and in happier days let us dwell in fair Ithilien, and there make a garden. All things will grow with joy there, if the white lady comes. Then I must leave my people, man of Gondor, she said. And would you have your proud folk say of you, There goes a lord who tamed the wild shield maiden of the north. Was there no woman of the race of Numenor to choose? And he took her in his arms and kissed her under the sunlit sky. And he cared not that they stood high upon the walls in the sight of many. And many indeed saw them, and the light that shone about them, as they came down from the walls and went hand in hand to the houses of healing. And to the warden of the houses, Faramir said, Here is the Lady Eowyn of Rohan, and now she is healed. So, I don't need to tell you that this scene is not great for Eowyn. It rather ruins her as a rounded female character. Indeed, one could argue that Faramir manages to cure her of her brand of proto-feminism and female agency by showing her that her place was as a wife, not as an independent woman who wished to carve her own path in the world. However, if we can move past this rather troubling idea, what we see here is, at its core, the Princess of Rohan marrying the Steward of Gondor. Now, this is framed as a marriage of love, not of politics per se, but it is a mightily symbolic one and could not have been arranged better by anyone. Yes, victory had been earned, but there were still enemy forces in the field. The world of men could not remain as divided as it had been in the lead-up to war, and so it makes perfect sense for their ancient alliance to be set in stone. And of course, for time immemorial, and especially in the Middle Ages, this was done through marriage. Aragorn was already promised, and he had no other family, so the sister of the new king of Rohan married the most eligible bachelor in Gondor. This ultimate marriage for alliance and peace has many parallels in our period, but it's interesting that it is quite rare for these things to be concluded from two such positions of strength. Gondor and Rohan were both victors in this war. Often marriages for peace in our story are like that of Henry V and Catherine of France, or Henry VI and Margaret of Anjou, one party on the rise, the other on the fall. This one, though, is one of equals, two people of similar standing from kingdoms of similar strength. 
Faramir is of the slightly more prestigious kingdom, but Eowyn is of a slightly higher social standing, so it evens out. From there, really, Eowyn's story ends. We know that she did go and live with Faramir in Athelion, and there they had a son called Elberon, who succeeded his father as Prince of Athelion and Sud of Gondor. So we have Eowyn fulfilling her duty as a wife, delivering children, but beyond that, our historian Tolkien does not give us much in the way of detail. So, that is Eowyn, the only really truly interesting female character that Tolkien ever devised, even if he did contrive to ruin her at the end. Her story arc starts with her being trapped between her duty to her uncle the king and the very real danger of her being married off to an enemy double agent. This devotion to her duty, despite her more martial, some might say masculine, inclinations, is shown when she is forced to stay behind at Edoras while the army of Rohan fought their do-or-die battle at the Hornburg at Helm's Deep, or forced to stay in the caves if you follow the film story arc. She finds her final straw, though, when she is denied the opportunity to fight at Minas Tirith, denied the ability to make her mark on the age. She rejected the notion that her duty was to stay behind when it was the duty of the men to fight. She saw it differently, she could fight. Rohan, and indeed the world of men, needed every sword arm it could muster, and therefore it was her duty to join the battle. In the end, her killing of the Witch King was one of the decisive moments that won it not only the Battle of Minas Tirith, but the whole War of the Ring. So, why have I told you all of this? Why is the fictional story of a warrior princess from a book written over half a century ago relevant to us as enthusiasts of the Queens of England? Well, partly, I will admit, I just wanted to indulge the Tolkien nerd inside of me, but it is that word duty that I think is key. Queens of England could consider many things to be their duty, but these things could often pull them in opposite directions. Interestingly, I think one of the best examples of this is Catherine of Aragon. Her duty was both to Spain and England, great when they were fighting a common enemy, less great when they were enemies. She had a duty to her husband, but also to her faith, something that we'll discuss in more detail in the next episode. The list goes on. Isabella of France and Margaret of Anjou, too, had to square their duties to their husbands with the need to protect their sons and their dynasty against assaults from rivals. Queens were very rarely in control of very much at all, and so they had a litany of people telling them what their duty was and to whom they owed it. I think that looking at how queens acted through this prism is a very interesting way of divining why it is that they did what they did, and it is with that thought that I shall leave you. With regard to the next episode, I'm going to try to get it out in time, i.e. in two weeks, but I will be doing a lot of travelling this Christmas, so there is a chance that it might be late. Keep an eye on the Facebook page where I'll keep you updated. Before I go, though, I've had quite a few people getting in touch, complimenting me on the intro-outro music that this podcast uses. I actually didn't have anything to do with its composition. It is, in fact, a free piece written by Kevin MacLeod at incompetech.com called Minstrel Guild. I took it from actually a much longer piece, which I've edited down from my use, but as my Christmas present to all of you, I will play the piece in full as the outro to this episode. I hope you have a fantastic holiday season, and I'll see you in 2017.
Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more and is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.